Stories from the Cumberland Arms, Episode 4. Taking possession, gin, opening night, and remembering a tragedy. Drunk for one penny, dead drunk for tuppence, straw for nothing, read the notices for Mother's Ruin. Gin was the scourge of the Georgian and Victorian poor and starving. Exceptional industrial growth brought exceptional hardship. Relief was found in gin. Children were neglected and daughters sold. Wet nurses gave babies gin to keep them quiet if the dose was large enough. As Ellen Castillo explains in Historic UK, there were 10 million gallons of gin distilled annually, sold through more than 7,000 dram shops in the capital alone, I believe. It rendered men impotent and women sterile. To try and stem the epidemic, the government taxed gin, but that put reputable sellers out of business. Bootleggers sold it, disguised by fancy names like Cuckold's Comfort, Ladies' Delight, Knock Me Down. Thankfully, the Beer House Act in 1830 sorted the situation. Within six years, Ellen records, there were some 50,000 beer houses, of which the Cumberland Arms became one in 1873. And I had bought it. The 2nd of August 2002 was a momentous day. As you heard in the last episode, that evening at the pub storytelling session I'd told how I'd found it. Later, when the tenants' leaving party was in full swing, I'd made a public commitment to preserve and develop the Cumberland's heritage. So, on the stroke of midnight, on the 2nd of August 2002, I took possession of the keys, opened the side door, and clambered up the winding staircase to my future home. Four large, dilapidated Victorian rooms awaited me. It felt as if they were ready and willing, like the rest of the place, for the love and care I was ready and willing to provide. Circumstances of purchase had been such that, previously, I'd only been able to spend about 15 minutes looking round the entire place. I had no idea what was involved in the Cumberland's restoration and repair before I bought it, However, the building itself had been standing since the 1800s, which was good enough for me. I unrolled my sleeping bag on the floor of one of the rooms and lay thinking about the undertaking ahead, both exciting and daunting. I didn't like beer, didn't go to pubs much, let alone have a clue how to run one, and I'd have to take licensee's exams. Not my forte. But first things first. The whole place needed a deep clean top to bottom. I'd gathered a group of friends for the purpose and we worked like crazy from the Saturday morning until five hours, five minutes and 59 seconds to the beep to get things shipshape, clean the loose, scrub the floors, wash down the walls and furniture and get beer and wine and loo paper and notify the licensing authority and the police and, of course, to buy a bottle of champagne to present to our first customer. We worked through one, if not two, nights and my younger daughter Jo came up from London to help as soon as she could, certainly to be there when we opened. More of Jo in the next episode. We were worried that no one would come and decided to offer a bottle of champagne to the first customer. As they swept out the back, 
with a late Davy Gray poised behind the bar, I opened the door at 6pm precisely on Wednesday the 7th of August to find the late and well-loved Eric Larkham standing there, first in line, as those who knew him knew he would be. Opening night was Wednesday night, and Wednesday night was Irish night. With this folk session going on for 25 years without a break, I was determined to continue this admirable run, still unbroken until Covid. And Wednesday night was also the night the rappers practised upstairs. They too had to continue their sessions uninterrupted. We needn't have worried. People came. I had not realised just how much goodwill there was amongst customers for the Cumberland Arms. Many had drifted away. Many were concerned that I would wreak radical change. But what they loved, I loved. This night was a wonderful night and still is a bit of a blur like this period generally. Would now that I had kept my ledger as I had intended, each night writing up the main events of the day. I had bought the volume, old-fashioned, hard, ornate crimson back, gold-edged pages. But frankly I was too knackered at the end of every one of these days and I had my day job to prepare for and attend to as well. But I do remember this night's joyful, busy atmosphere, the Irish tunes jiggling away, the rappers enjoying an after-practice well-deserved pint. I was not yet practised at pouring pints, though I did my best that night. The spillage, landlords say, is a pint's profit down the drain. I dashed hither and thither, seeing everything was all right, collecting glasses, visiting the rappers upstairs and there was a bloke built like a brick house who insisted on standing in the doorway by the piano making access very difficult. I had to ask him each time to let me through. He looked down at me from a great height and said, You're a pest. Barman's burden, I responded. I remember closing time approaching. We had a ship's bell to ring a ten-minute call but people pressed me to have a lock-in. First night, go on, police never come. You'll make money. Do it cash on the side, private party. There's always been one. Can't pontificate down at the law courts and break the rules up here, can I? I explained. I hope not too pompously. Pete Challoner of the old rope-string band understood my position and asked for a bottle of wine to take home or to a party, I can't recall which. Turned out he didn't have the readies, so I told him to pay the next time he happened to be in. The Cumberland was privileged to hold the old rope-string band on a number of occasions. Tim Darling, who wrote and plays the introduction to these podcasts, was also a part of the old rope-string band, and both were part of its successor, the new rope-string band. The third member of the band and its artistic inspiration was the late and astonishingly talented Joe Scurfield, and I would like to end this episode in memory of him. The old rope string band mixed music, comedy and knockabout to hilarious effect. The Guardian said of him that Joe, quote, was most comfortable on stage and had a thirst to entertain, which led him to master circus skills. 
His act included juggling, fire-eating, clog and step dancing and unicycling. The band toured the world and he recorded two CDs which both merged Cajun two-step Celtic tunes, Mexican polkas, Spanish love songs and much else. Joe wrote incessantly while berating himself because he felt there were enough folk songs in the world already that deserved to be played. He loved to travel and was fluent in Danish, Dutch, French and Spanish. Although he felt that, via an Irish tune, you could communicate with anyone. Looking for a defunct fiddle tradition in Granada in 2000, he ended up playing tunes with the locals. Joe was a socialist. One of his most popular songs was New Labour Blues. And during the 1984 miners' strike, he played benefits with a band raised for the occasion, the Country Pickets, and spent hours on picket lines and street collecting. The old rope string band were due to leave for a tour of Borneo, and he had taken out a library book to learn the language, and had written a song in Malay. Tragically, he never went. At only 46, he and his friend Keith Morris the saxophonist, were killed in 2005 by a 17-year-old hit-and-run driver on Westgate Road. A wake for them was held at the Cumberland and a tree commemorates them both on the Cumberland's southern boundary. And for next time, on a much lighter note, getting going. What's a place that we all go? The Cumberland Arms podcast was produced and recorded by Hal Branson, barman at the Cumberland Arms between 2006 and 2008. The music featured in the Cumberland Arms podcast is by Tim Dalling. To play us out of the episode, here's the old rope string band with their song Mutiny. Hear this tale, terrible but true. It fell upon the 9th of April 1992 Some were sitting dumbstruck and some in floods of tears As the bloody Tory government got five more years There was people battered by their grief, shattered and beyond belief Doom and despair as far as the eye could see There was people wailing, people crying, people sailing, people flying Trying to find a place to call democracy Late that night, I drank myself to bed I needed anaesthetic, cause I wish that I was dead I thought we'd get to celebrate the government's demise But the voters all went crazy right before our bloody eyes And as I slept the scream, so people crept into my dreams So deep I swear, I thought the world had come to judgement day And I dreamed we all were lost at sea It seemed we'd lost our liberty To a bunch of Tory pirates who were dressed in grey On board their ship, we were waiting Waiting to be sold, slaves to the men in grey, selling us for gold. The old ones and the young ones, the female and the male. The skull and crossbones flying meant were all for sale. As we were sailing all the waves again, the wailing of the slaves in pain echoed to the lashing of the pirate's whip. When suddenly we heard the cries, come all ye slaves, we shall arise. We'll have a mutiny aboard this ship. Hooray! Joy of joys, justice came at last. We threw the pirates overboard into the sea, they splashed. 
We bummed our jolly roger and we raised the flag of red. We sang a song and danced a jig for the pirates all were dead. But through the singing and the cheers, I heard a ringing in my ears. The pain of a baby's voice came piercing through. The baby's voice I recognized and suddenly I realized it was the 10th of April, 1992. Oh my God. My head was split in two. I changed the baby's nappy, she was soaked right through. But through my sickness and my headache was a bonny sight to see. The baby laughed and smiled a golden smile at me. And I was thinking how I'd love to see the day when that wee child and me could wake up to a world where all the slaves were free. And if when my daughter's old as me and pirates still control the sea, counting all their gold with glee. I hope and pray that every day we'll still be shouting mutiny.